out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Hello and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, as we are continuing our look through the later uh, Lovecraft revisions and collaborations and ghostwriting work, uh, we come to the stories that uh, the stories by Dwayne W. Rimmel that were, uh, you know, that Lovecraft aided with in in debatable ways. Right? It's not so clear uh, how much of a say or role Lovecraft had in these stories. What we do know is that Rimmel's shared these stories with Lovecraft and Lovecraft gave advice and so we we can conclude them in the series as 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 works that Lovecraft had some hand in um so Dwayne Rimmel is a is it was it was a pulp writer lived from 1915 to 1996 um he's known for a lot of like uh pulpy sex books in the 1960s but uh he did when he was young, uh, write a handful of weird tales. Um, these were all written when he was like 18 or 19 or so. So, um, so he's kind of part of the Lovecraft circle, even though he kind of went on to do other things later in his, his career. So, um, we have three stories, uh, by Dwayne Rimmel, uh, that we can look at the tree on the hill, the sorcery of Alfar and the disinterment. I'll just break that up into two episodes because the sorcery of Alfar is is less than a thousand words long. It's basically a little vignette, a Dunsany style vignette. Um, but you know, I could probably do these all in one episode actually because they're not. Um, you know, you don't get the sense here that at least with the first two um, that they're really so dependent on Lovecraft's ideas. It's not like with the Hazel Heald revisions, all of which, except for maybe the Horror and the Burying Ground, seem really uh, tied to Lovecraft's mythology in specific ways. It doesn't fit as the same thing with the Zelia Bishop revisions, where they seem, those really seem to be Lovecraft works. Um, this is These are just weird tales that, fantasy stories that, you know, that you could see that, that, there's some kind of Lovecraftian concepts in them, but they're not really, they don't really feel to us like Lovecraft works, at least not to me. So the first of these I want to talk about is The Tree on the Hill, uh, which was written in 1934. Um, it was published in 1940 in a fan magazine called Polaris. Um, I don't know if that's that's tied at all to, it's, it's, I don't know if that's named in, in kind of honor of Lovecraft or not, but it's just a fan magazine. So... You know, not a, a super important story, not published in the big uh, pulps, but an interesting story, nonetheless, I think. Um, it deals with photography. I, I like stories that take contemporary technologies and, and put kind of an occult supernatural spin on them, right? It's a really interesting, for me, uh, way that fantasy writers can play with modern technologies and not just be a science fiction writer, but, but show... Because I, I do think there are creepy things about modern technologies, that maybe we're so used to them we don't experience them, them so viscerally but you know i you know i think f calling on the phone is one of these things where it's you it's a really odd experience where you're you're talking to this kind of disembodied voice you often don't know quite who you're talking to 
Nowadays, it's even worse when you're often talking to robots and things. And there's something kind of eerie and creepy about that. I know horror writers have played with telephones, uh, you know, the call from the stranger, the murderer in the house, kind of uh, those kind of pulpy tales. Um, you know, but even Stephen King has done stories like The Sun Dog, which plays with kind of the eeriness of ph- photography. Another story he wrote called N has the same kind of idea. That, and actually, actually, this seems to maybe inspired N a little bit. Um, slightly, perhaps. I don't know if I can say Love uh, Stephen King wrote, read this story, but uh, you can see there's um, something, there's some parallels between this story and, and N in the use of technology. In this case, it's photography, which was, of course, a very, very important technology at the time in the 1930s for documenting the Great Depression. Uh, you have Walker Evans, Dorothea Lange, and these very, very famous um, photographers who are, you know, you know, preserving little aspects of American American life, and then you start to get like, uh, f- you know, pricing the price to gauge of photography starts to go down, so people start to be able to do this on their own as amateurs. You start to get more photography of people's families and daily lives, trips, and all that. So that's kind of the the centerpiece of what we have here. Um, so this is set in, I guess, a made up town. Um, but it's kind of out in the west somewhere. It's, it's it's in a place with a lot of federal land. So this is set kind of in a, in like an what we call a national forest. It was then the, the Blue Mountain Forest Reserve is is the place that this is set in, and he's traveling there to, to as a photographer. Our narrator, if you will, is 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 traveling there to to document what he sees. Now there is a bunch of local superstitions about this place. That's a classic thing we see in Lovecraft all the time, but not distinct to him, that certainly, as we see here. Uh, quote, there's a local superstition that the area is haunted, but by what or by whom, no one seems to know. Natives won't venture within its mysterious steps, for they believe the story is handed down to them by the Nez Pierce Indians, who have shunned the region for untold generations. Um, end quote. Um, there's other weird things about this uh, neighborhood where apparently a pirate was hiding out here. So there's like a cabin that was once run by a pirate, owned by a pirate. It's, like, it's kind of a hideout. Um, but then we get, he goes, he's traveling and exploring this area. And he gets to this place that really much reminds us of the Blasted Heath in the color of space. A place uh, where all the vegetation is damaged, uh, violated, destroyed in some way. But there's not the physical evidence of like a fire that you'd expect something else has has just devastated it right and so in colorado space it calls it becomes called the blasted heath here it's just similar it's like you've got soil but no grasses growing no plants are growing it's just like a barren landscape in the middle of all this other healthy landscape so there's something weird going on here um and then he sees a single tree the single tree so that's the tree on the hill of our of our story's name and it's very unique. It's distinctive. It's something he's never seen before. Um, it's it's out of place. It's something that he knows that it shouldn't be there, right? He can't explain why. He just knows it shouldn't be there. It's out of place. Um, quote, there is no other range of snow-capped peaks. Oh, th- this is actually, he sees... Uh, mountains that are supposed to be far away when he's near this uh, tree as well. Now those are also not supposed to be there. And he writes, there's no other range of snow-capped peaks within 300 miles of Hampton. 
And I knew at this altitude that I shouldn't be seeing them at all. For several minutes, I gazed at the marvel, and then I became drowsy. I lay in the ranks, rank grass beneath the tree, tree, unstrapped my camera, took off my hat, relaxed, staring skyway through the green leaves. I closed my eyes. End quote. And then he has a vision and of, of like a temple and other, other, other worldly things. He finally begins to take photographs of the whole region when he kind of gets his head together. He takes photographs of everything, the whole landscape, the tree. You know, it sounds like dozens and dozens of photographs um, of the whole setting to try to document this, right? And after this, he has like a cosmic experience, right? Like a, a, he really sees into the abyss. He sees beyond like space and time into some kind of other universe, Uh you know, kind of like if you were to climb that mountain in the, the Outer Gods story, right? What you'd see there is sort of like what our narrator here sees. And later when he kind of comes out of it, he realizes he's been sort of sleepwalking uh, from his clock. His watch is a really useful device here using technology again. His clock stops at 1034, but it's late afternoon. So he's been sleepwalking for hours and hours, you know, like five, seven hours. And... Um, and that's that, all right? So he finally he comes back, and we meet this this friend of his called uh, Thunius. He was actually mentioned earlier in the story, but we got this guy Thunius, who he shares some of his experience with, and shows him the photos, which have um, mountains in them. So it seems to be some proof of what he's seen, which is a nice. I kind of expected the photographs to show just the blasted region, not even the tree, but no, the, the proof is in the photographs. The thing is, though, things are slightly different in the photographs, which is, which is, I think, even better um, for the story. Um, things are, they're just, they're, they're off. He calls it more, like, he says the tree didn't look as repulsive as that in real life. It looked more pristine or something, but when you saw it in the picture, it's, it's more grotesque. Um, and he started, it even seems more unworldly, more unreal. So we got this unreal tree in the photo. So we got kind of a distance from it, but that even adds to the unreality of it, which is another interesting, I think, commentary on photography. And it's, you know, we, we think we're documenting reality, but we're, we're kind of separating ourselves from it, right? I guess the good example is when people on a trip smile for a photo, people look back on the photo later, they say, oh, everyone's smiling. They must have been having a good time. But, but of course, we know everyone was told to smile. You know, maybe someone was sick. Maybe someone else wasn't having a good time. Maybe someone just, you know, heard some bad news. But they smile for the photo, right? But we got this memory then of a good time through the photo, right? Now, so uh, photos don't really document reality in that way. And I, I think that's partially Rimmel's point here. Uh, it's a suggestion to, or at least he's using it for this uncanny weird fiction narrative of of a tree that's somehow a conduit or a window into another world or evidence of a of a of a thinny of sorts into a into another reality now our narrator says he wants to go back to see the tree and thunius his friend kind of talks him out of it and says no 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 you don't want to go there you better stay away um you probably can't find it anyways and it's going to creep you out and then the narrator says no nonsense we have all these photographs we can that I've been taking when I was out there. We can use that to find our way back to the place. Um, but Thunius is is trying to keep him away from it. And then Thunius finally kind of tells him, "Well, you know, I've been studying these old books, and so I got this kind of other Lovecraftian trope 
of the old ancient books that contain some kind of knowledge. And so this is the, the English translation of the Chronicle of Nath, written by Rudolf Yigler. Uh, this is all quotes. A German mystic and alchemist who borrowed some of his lore from Hermes Thistamigus, the ancient Egyptian sorcerer. And he quotes a passage which says, talks about the year of the goat, right? So this is kind of, I guess, maybe like a, a, a Shub Nigarith kind of connection. I don't know if he's, I don't remember if he's mentioned directly by name that way in the story. He might have been. So the, that might be the closest we get to a, a clear Lovecraft connection. But anyways, um, this is what we're told about the year of the black goat. So in the year of the black goat, there came unto Nath a shadow that should not be on earth and it had no form known to the eyes of the earth and it fed on the souls of men they that it gnawed being lured and blinded with dreams till the horror of the endless night lay upon them nor did they see that which gnawed them for the shadow took false shapes of men that men know or dream of and only freedom seemed waiting in the land of the three sons but it was told by the priests of the old book that he who could see the shadow's true shape and live after seeing it might shun its doom and send it back to the starless gulf in the spawn in its spawning this none could do save for the gem wherefore did kafnafer the high priest keep the gem sacred in the temple and when it was lost with furnace he who braved the horror and was never seen more there was a weeping at nath yet did the shadow depart sated at last nor shall its horror again till the cycles roll back to the year of the black goat end quote so he's saying that's where we're at we're at the year of the black goat so this is sort of what you're experiencing right so he says, I'm going to use this gem I have, some kind of recently rediscovered gem from like ancient Egypt or something. I'm going to use this gem and I'm going to use it to kind of study the photographs. And so he's kind of trying to apply the scientific method sort of to this. Um, but Thunia is clearly as more into the occult than our narrator. He's, he's read the books. So he's uh, maybe has ulterior motives here. But there's a great little moment here where Thunias comments on modern science um, where he basically says like modern science is pushing the bounds of what we think reality is so once that happens once we have quantum mechanics once we have general relativity once the newtonian system begins to break down because of new you know new scientific discoveries then it's kind of all opens it opens everything up right now you know take that with what you will but that's sort of what it says here and that's sort of what lovecraft uh, kind of believes even though he's a strict materialist he does talk a lot about how like our science gave us a comfortable model of the universe and that's starting to be broken down by modern science and maybe that's going to open up doors that we don't want to enter because it's going to change fundamentally our consumption of reality and kind of leave us adrift as he says in call of cthulhu so uh, a couple weeks passed after this where he's trying to stop himself from going to see the tree he's he's being driven to go to see the tree um at the same time thunius is studying this he's got his ancient books he's got the gem he's got the photographs and he's doing different weird science things like refraction polarization unknown angles of space and time so he's getting all sciencey trying to dissect this and so it's 16 days later he gets a call from the hospital and thunius is there and he had some kind of um seizure sick can't do his experiments anymore and he's he's sort of forced to abandon them but he is able to go there and talk to him and he says you must destroy them all those pictures 
I sent it back by seeing it. But the pictures had better go. That tree will not never be seen on the hill again, at least I hope not till thousands of eons bring back the year of the black goat. You are safe now, mankind is safe. But saying you gotta destroy the pictures and hide away the gem. Now he goes there and he finally does get the photos. Um, and he has this intense desire to, to to keep them, right? The same kind of desire he had just to be drawn back to the tree. He has this desire to keep the photos, but ultimately he's able to to burn them. So he never goes through the method directly of using the gem to look at the photos to see what he sees, because uh, the and the photos are destroyed. But he does end up kind of going through his, his notes and stuff and seeing the sketch that Thunius made of, of something he saw in one of the photographs. And this brings us to the climax of the story. Um, quote, only a few basic elements of the landscape were in the thing. For the most part, a cloudy, exotic-looking vapor dominated the view. Every object that might have been familiar was seen to be part of something vague or unknown or altogether unterrestrial, something infinitely vaster than any human eye could grasp, an infinitely alien, monstrous, and hideous, and guessed from the fragment out within range. Where I had in the landscape itself seen the twisted, half-sentient tree, there was here visible only a gnarled, terrible hand and talons with fingers or feelers, shockingly distended and evidently groping towards something on the ground or in the spectator's direction. And squarely beneath the writhing, bloated digits, I saw the outline in the grass where a man had laid. So it's some kind of monster and the outline of a body, which I guess is him, is our narrator. But he says at the end, he, he leaves some doubt at the end, saying the sketch was hasty and I cannot be sure. So we're, we're meant to doubt a little bit here because, you know, Thunius seems to be a bit crazy. He's into this occult stuff and he drew this very vague picture that be obviously open to interpretation. The original evidence is destroyed. So we can kind of just leave it open. So that's that's the story of the tree on the hill. So this is not a bad story. I think it, it deserves more than just a fan fiction magazine publication. Um, there's some really interesting stuff going on in this tale. So that's all. That's all I really want to say about the, the tree on the hill. I guess certainly not a super important tale to read if you're a Lovecraft fan. But uh, really nothing with the major themes of this podcast, dealing with race and immigration and historical memory and those kinds of things. That's not a major role in the story. It's much more straight up cosmic horror, um, but it plays with technology in interesting ways, which I like. So that's it. So then to very briefly, the sorcery of, of Aflar, only 900 words. Um, this might not even have any Lovecraft influence at all. Um, the closest we could say that it is that it's also like a Dunsany vignette, short, short tale. Um, and so maybe Rimmel through reading Lovecraft was drawn to Dunsany and, and kind of did a similar, uh, similar pastiche on, on him. So this was written in 34. It was published in a magazine I never heard of before called Fantasy Fan. Um, so I guess that's just another fan magazine though. Um, Again, only 900 pages, or 900 words, sorry, 900 words. So basically, Alflar is like this uh, priest in this 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 fantasy uh, kingdom in the twilight city of Belhazen. Um, it's a very, very reactionary society, right, where philosophy is being uh, undermined. It's... Uh, 
you know, it's becoming a decadent society. Uh, it's in very significant decline. Uh, we're told once where once the wisdom of the stars abounded, only feebleness and desolation now lay upon the place, spreading like a monstrous blight and sucking foul nurture from the stupid dwellers. And out in the waters of the all that meandered from the mountains of Aska to pass by the aged city, there rose often great clouds of pestilence that raked the people sorely, leaving them pale and near to dying. All this loss of wisdom brought. And now the council has sent their last and greatest wise men from them. End quote. So Alfar gets exiled. Alfar, their great wise man, their great sorcerer, gets exiled, um, which seems to have happened before. And he goes into exile and he's pretty happy. He goes into the mountains, uh, builds a little cave for himself, is living in the cave, and he just reads his scrolls. He does his daily walks and all that, and he's pretty happy. Um, but the other elders of the city have decided to basically assassinate him, right? To knock him off, so they're going to send murderers there to kill him. So he just goes on with his life, though. Uh, not, I guess he doesn't really know this assassination is happening. Maybe he does because he's a wise man, but it doesn't really matter for the story. Um, he's just doing his little investigation, talking to the snails, things like that. Um, and then one day he finds an object. He rescues an object. Um, on one of his walks near the riverbed and he begins to become obsessed with this and look upon it and he brings it back to his his cavern um, and then a section ends that night the gibbous moon rose high but alfar did not climb above his dwelling queer night birds flew past the caverns mouth tripped early and fled away into the shadows so we got a really kind of bizarre ambiguous ending of a section and then we get another section which is just like half a page um, which is about the assassination attempt. So days later, the tw the I think seven men were brought were sent to assassinate Alfar, finally, and they find he's not there, right? Instead, small blades of grass were spreading in his natural chair of the earth. All around lay papyri, dim and musty, with faint fragrance, faint figures drawn on them. So they eventually find the object that Alfar found, which was a uh, just this this uh, little trinket that has this alien symbol written on him. But it makes him scared. Quote made them shrink and quaver without knowing why. Then he found it, cast it quickly over the step, steep precipices beside him, but no sound came from the slope below wherein it should have fallen. Uh, then the Thor trembled, fearing many things that are not known but only whispered about. End quote. Um, he says it like floated in the air, even though it's like a little stone, like weighted like a stone should drop, but it sort of floated in the air before it fell. So a bunch of weird stuff happened there. Uh, and the final scene is this snail that kind of investigates the scene. So there's not much to say about it. It's really enigmatic. Is Alfar the snail at the end? Has he been transformed? Did he just leave? And the, you know, did he get some wisdom from the the thing and just leave? Um, you know, the setting's really ambiguous and enigmatic. So, I don't know, you kind of, with these sort of stories, you take what you want from them, I suppose. There's not that much to work with here. Um, but it is it is fairly well written and, and, and kind of compelling. So, I guess that's all I'm going to say about the, the Sorcerer of Alfar. Um, it not really being a major Lovecraft story anyways, I'm not going to feel the need to say much more about it. Um, now, the next one... Uh, I'm going to look at it in the next episode. I'll spend the whole episode on it, even though it's also fairly short. Uh, 
is called the Disinternment, um, written in 1835. And this one apparently is a little bit more Lovecraftian. People have thought maybe this is more of a Lovecraft story than a Rimmel story. Who knows, really, right? We don't really have the documentary evidence to, to prove it, and textual evidence can be, can be debated and, and, and whatever. But it does, I guess it feels a little bit more like a Lovecraft story. So that's what we're going to look at next in the next episode, and we'll finish up with this quick little series on, on Dwayne Rimmel. Um, that said, uh, after reading a little bit of the biography of Dwayne Rimmel, I think I, I'm kind of curious about some of his, his other works and some of his other pulp fiction that he had written over the over the years. So if anyone knows any good recommendations of a, of a place to start with Rimmel, maybe his 60s and 70s stuff, his, uh, you know, his more uh, raunchy, I guess, fiction, I'd be interested in knowing more about that. So if anyone has read any of that stuff, let me know what that, you know, where to start with, with Rimmel. All right. I guess that's it for now. I'll see you next time with uh, the disinternment. Thanks for listening. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away as much as to say. You've never known me, stranger, after sharing all your